honest with you, I have not looked forward to this one. It's, uh, you know, the, as a preacher, especially if you preach regularly, go through scripture, there are passages that feel easier than others. There's a passage describing love or affection or tenderness that feels kind of like a layup. And then when you hear Jesus be this way, a desert prophet worshiping a god of fire, it's evident that that's who he is, and it can be hard to receive. In fact, both are readings. Not only Jesus saying, but St. Paul was sharing to the church in Thessalonica about the day of the Lord and destruction. And there's hope that went into that, but it's hard to, it's hard to see it when you receive this heavy teaching. Um, but I think it behooves us, as followers of Jesus, to attend to his word here. We can't ignore it. Uh, the worst thing a Christian can do is pretend that Jesus didn't say what he said or try to put it under a pillow and hide it and just try to focus on the parts that you like, ignore the parts that you don't. That is a failure of faith that will destroy your relationship with God, right? That's not the way we can do it. We know that's true in any honest relationship. Any couple that doesn't fight, I'd be worried about that. Because to be honest with each other means to uh, encounter the, the difficult parts of each other, to try to understand the other, to make space for the other, right? That's what a, an honest relationship does. And as we've been discovering this past season, every Sunday, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We've been landing on several things. One is that we're not primarily engaged in some kind of philosophy or ideology. We're engaged in a relationship with the living God come to us in Jesus Christ. So we have a specific relationship, and that relationship uh, gives a... Once you engage a relationship with God, a contour of a human life suddenly becomes apparent. The life isn't what we choose it to be. Whatever we want, actually, to engage in a relationship with God means to live a life shaped by His life, by His Word, namely Jesus. We talked about what it means to love sacrificially, what it means... Love practically often means forgiveness. It means speaking the truth in love, right? But speaking it, not pretending that injustice doesn't happen, but actually speaking out and acting on that. And as every Sunday, we've been sort of seeing this shape. And then the past two or three Sundays, we've been noticing that this shape isn't just an outward appearance, but it's actually a reflection of an internal change. That God actually changes our heart, our mind. We're transformed from the inside out. So really we've been talking about a posture of the heart. What does it mean to have a heart that is uh, dedicated to Jesus Christ? Anything other than that is charades. It's externalism, right? You can just you can leave through the Bible, show up on Sunday, sing the songs even really well. But that is a facade with no real content if your life is engrafted into the life of Jesus. So that's what we've been processing. And so I think a big part of our heart, now here, this is for all humans. Uh, a part that we struggle, I struggle, so this is a very personal one, I guess, as well. They're all personal, but this one hits, is the notion of the judgment of God. That's just hard. How do we make sense of this? What is, what is God, what is Jesus trying to say? With judgment. Um, two nights ago, I have a, <coughs> had a conversation with a good friend of mine from high school. Um, 
which is a bit ago now, I guess. And he, uh, him, and, him and one of his friends started a podcast, and everyone's starting a podcast. I guess I should have one too. Anyway, this podcast, and they, he started one. They're really investing in it, and um, it's, I don't know, maybe I'll share it with you guys. It's like they do a lot of raunchy stuff. God bless them. But it started as a joke, but then they were really like, hey, well, we should have a priest on this. It'd be hilarious. And so I, I hopped on, had a great conversation with them, and within minutes, we talked about this. We talked about this. Because, I mean, every Sunday, here at least, and if you go to church, usually every Sunday, we say something like the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, da 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 He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We say that. They knew it. We know it. Right? I remember years ago at a different church, I was leading a, a Christian foundations course where we sort of explored the basics of the Christian faith, and we went through the Apostles' Creed, and when we got that, we all recognized, the group recognized, that we say it every Sunday, but then when you sit down and parse it through, you're like, I don't feel comfortable with this. I don't like this. I don't really believe this is true. Which is almost funny, because you think to yourself, this creed that's withstood thousands of years, the point of it is to give you the contour of what you believe, but we recognize that it's possible to say it and then not believe it. And that's a problem. So there I'm talking with friends, and in that conversation, of course, because I've known them for so long, even my own, I guess my own uh, shields went down. Hopefully I didn't say too much. But uh, here's what we all agree to. And you tell me if this, this fits on you. I'm not going to put this on you, but I want to see if you can pick it up and if it fits with you. Every human being across the ages has not liked the notion of judgment. There's rarely been a case where humans are like, well, yes, please, I'd love to be judged. I'd love to be held accountable and discover that I'm found wanted. No one wants. But our culture, our present modern age, has had a very specific relationship with that. If every human age has presented that reality of judgment, ours really doesn't like it. And there are reasons for that. There's a reason why I don't like it. Likely why you don't. And to put it, I guess, as clearly as I can, maybe, is because if you grow up in the modern Western culture, like ours here in Canada, uh, you're raised uh, in a bubble that endorses what we sometimes call hyper-individualism, right? The notion is, at its best, that the individual should be protected against the domination of the group. That no matter where you are, tall, short, strong, weak, whatever, whatever you designate yourself as, you should be allowed to be protected from a stronger external influence, right? We prioritize the individual over the many, which has not been the norm for Christian history at all. Most Christian history littered with the kingdom, the empire, the tribe, the clan, press, takes precedence over the individual. But ours, it's, a, it's different. And there's a lot of good in that. I'm not gonna put that on blast. I actually love so much of what we have achieved as a, as a people and a culture. But if we're honest about that, but this reality that we prioritize the individual is that we're all embedded with that way of thinking and seeing. That's the lens from which we not only engage, see, and engage our culture, but how we interpret our experiences reality. So everything's interpreted under a lens of, well, does that make sense to me? Do I like that? Does that appeal to me? Do I agree to that? Right? This is my, this is what I believe. This is my ideology. This is my faith. This is my identity. I affirm it. And there's a complication there. Uh, one is, uh, 
as uh, Charles Taylor was a very famous, prominent Canadian philosopher. He wrote a book uh, not too long ago, I guess, maybe 10 years ago, called The Secular Age, and it's a tome. And this is the book that now modern philosophy will be responding to for the next age. And in this book, he does a, a thorough analysis of how we got to this part. How did we get from the clan first to now the individual? And one thing he says is that, well, we prioritize the individual. And for all the beauty, because he actually really loves it, he says that the main weakness is that when you go out there and say, I'm first, the individual first, me first, you're actually creating a fragile identity. It's not, it's not supported by the network of, let's say, family, clan, you're not getting your identity from other structures, that, institutional structures that have lasted longer than you. You're going out and saying, me! And when you go out there, it's like going out with no skin. And the only way you can protect yourself and assert yourself is to adamantly proclaim it and force other people to agree to your individualism, to what you're saying. And no better vehicle in this age, social media, being online, posting, proclaiming, affirming, agree with me, you don't agree with me, cancel this aggressive assertion of who we are over the wider population, and in this case, because we're Christians, over God. We actually approach God in the Bible and say, well, let's see, Jesus, I want to see if I agree with you. Uh, I like this part about love and tenderness. I don't like this part about judgment and accountability and virtues. I don't like that. And we actually think we can come to God and say, I agree with this and not this. Oh, this part, you were aggressive, and this is your whole time ancient Palestinian way. Which of that is <laughs> problematic to a high degree, but also it's a product of the culture we raise it, individuals. But that's not the way the universe is arranged. That's the pop in the bubble. That's ultimately not how the universe is arranged because if this universe is created by a God, and the God has revealed to us the way that we are meant to live in relationship to that God, then there's already a shape of life that we're meant to attune to. Ultimate reality is therefore not defined by what I enjoy and what I like, my proclivity, my desires. My desires and what I enjoy must, be, uh, sub, must submit, must be shaped by, well, God, my Creator. This is not a new insight. In fact, it's been the basis of some of the most beautiful... Uh, Realities that we now enjoy. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the greatest social activists of the last century, when proclaiming and fighting for uh, African-American civil rights, or just civil rights in general, what would he say? There's a moral arc to the universe. There's a moral arc. It's not up to you to decide what's right or wrong. There's actually a moral arc, and your, your actions, our actions as a community, are judged by that moral arc. You don't stand in judgment of it, it judges you. Now, the racist dominant community that didn't want to give civil rights hated that idea because they wanted to say, well, no, we make it up. And that wasn't true. And here we are today, and I could confidently say that no one here disagrees with Martin Luther King Jr. We would admit he was right. What he proclaimed. And yet we still have this internal reaction. I don't want to be judged by it. And when I was talking to my friends in this podcast, they were saying it's just very uncomfortable because um, I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm nice to my neighbors, to my friends. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but 
I do good things in this world. Why should I stand before God and be judged? I think that's just really off-putting. I guess I'll tell you some of what I told them. Yeah, it is. Because usually we walk around feeling like we're good people. But I want to tell you, there are a lot of people in this world who have no problem with judgment. And I'm not talking about people who like love to condemn and hate other people. I'm talking about people who are uh, <coughs> severely oppressed. You see, we live in a very comfortable bubble. I know we all have stories. Every person I talk to is going through something, they're going through some hurt, they're processing some trauma. I'm not trying to belittle our experiences. But there are people, like my family in Guatemala, right? Or people experiencing famine in Gambia right now. Things like that. People who are going who are losing family members. Who don't know if tomorrow they're gonna they're gonna wake up and have any food for the family. People who are under duress, who by holding their beliefs uh, are risking being macheted to death. These are the people I'm talking about. That there are people in this world who actually do suffer intensely. And no one sees what happens to them. They live and die. They're treated like trash. And, and, and when they die, they must believe, no one spoke for me. No one stood up for me. And no one's going to know my story. I, I just have to disappear. And then, so there's those, there are people like that in this world. And there are people in this world who commit the evil atrocities. And they live long and comfortable lives. And they come to the end of their lives surrounded by loved ones and their piles of cash, and they feel, well, they got away with it. And then they die, and it really does seem like they did. Right? History is littered with these realities. But what Jesus is saying, what the Bible is saying about judgment is this that that belief that that poor person who died in a ditch undefended by, by no one, and the person who died uh, being an oppressor with no one to challenge them, that's not the end of the story. That at some point, God is going to come back to this world and it's going to be like, everyone wake up. And everyone's going to wake up and there's going to be an accounting. So that person who died unknown, unloved, unprotected, like my cousin Henry. Why am I here? Why is he dead? Here's going to wake up. And God's going to stand there and say, I saw what happened to you. And come with me. We're going to talk about this. We're going to figure this one out. We're not going to forget this. Let's go. And the person who thought they died in comfort, they got away with it, they're going to wake up. And they're going to stand before the throne of God. And God's going to stand right there and say, now we're going to talk about your life. There's no getting away from this. And so you see, for many people in this world, the doctrine of judgment is actually a hope. A hope. Miroslav Volf, one of the greatest theologians of the last century, he, he wrote an incredible book called Exclusion and Embrace, and I encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's not that long. And he suffered through the war in Kosovo in the mid-90s. Maybe you remember that. But it, it kind of ended in a terrible bombing campaign. One of the most serious bombing campaigns in the 20th century. And he was on the ground, and he lived it. And he saw his family, he saw his father and brothers murdered, he saw his mother and sisters ravaged and killed in front of him. And he wasn't alone. His neighbors, his community, loved ones, on a horrible scale. He saw devastation. And then he writes, he, he grew older, he, he became Christian, he wrote this book. I can only paraphrase it, I can't quote you entirely, but this is what he says. He says that the doctrine of judgment, that God's going to make, give an account, we have to account, he says, actually, it brings peace to this world. Because 
If I believed for one second that God wasn't going to come back and judge this world, I'll pick up the sword today and I'll find the people who hurt my family. But because I know and I trust that one day Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead, I can put the sword down and I can wait for the perfect justice of God. And it brings peace to this world. That's what he says. And he says that the notion that God does not judge the world could only be born from the comfort of the suburban Western mind. Because when you've seen the blood, the bodies of those loved ones littered around you, that idea that judgment is not good disappears with all the nice, comfortable prisons of the liberal mind. So the first step is to recognize that when we feel uncomfortable with judgment, that there are people in this world who actually long for it. And we should long for it too, when we see that evil has been done. That's, that's one. My friends, I know this is heavy work. I know it's heavy to receive, it's heavy to say, no doubt. But I want to tell you, the ends in hope and love. I promise, I said that. Here, here it is. Because if it stopped here, then we'd all be in trouble. Because we all have cell phones, our clothes, and we have a sweatshop, like we're guilty. We talked about that before. No one escapes. Every human being is enmeshed in the injustice of this world. It's hard to tease out. We could, we can't, is the answer. We're, we're, implicit, we're, we're kind of implicated. The truth is, each one of us has lives. I have my life. Then we said, well, okay, I didn't do a bombing campaign, but if I had to stand before God right now, if my life could be displayed on TV right now, all of us said, your life's going to be shown on TV, we kind of cringe. Like, oh, no, don't do that. I, don't, I can't withstand scrutiny. Oh, me. I'll speak for myself. I don't like that. And when we get to that part, we think, ooh, yeah, judgment is good for those who are suffering, but I've suffered too. Maybe I haven't died of famine, but I've been hurt. Right? People have heard us, sometimes people have heard us, and people have died, so there's no apology coming, there's no reconciliation, there's no understanding. But people are hurt today, they're still alive, but they won't talk to you, they won't, you can't heal that. You carry your own trauma, right? And, I've hurt people. And I haven't apologized. And God, I'm this complicated, I'm this complex person of receiving hurt and hurting others. And I can't untangle that, God. And I'm not sure that I can stand before you. I want to stand the world stand before you because I want the evildoers to come to justice, but I know that once that happens, I, I can't stand there either. And I'm nervous. And I want to tell you that's understandable. There's no shame about that. That makes sense. I want to tell you that God knows that. Because God knows that because he came to us in the person of Jesus. He didn't come as a mighty emperor with a sword and and a scale to judge the whole world and cut him down. He came as a humble carpenter and he preached the message of love. He taught us how to connect to God. And he said, if you just trust me, it's going to be okay. Maybe you can't even trust me, but maybe you want to trust me. 1 John 3.20 says, even the desire to want to trust is purifying. Maybe I want to want to want, right? I know we're feeble. Every day you wake up, it's a little different. But God meets us in our weakness. We know that because God met us in our weakness, coming to our humanity, our frailty. He didn't hate us. He loved us. He didn't judge us and push us away. He loved us and drew near. He drew so near that he drew to our very death and he died on the cross. 
He was not ashamed of it. He met us at our lowest. On the cross, he died. And he didn't stay dead. He came back. He was resurrected on the third day. And what that means is that he says, if death can touch you, then nothing can touch you. The wrong that's been done to you, I will heal. The wrong that you've done, if you trust me, I will heal. I will make you whole. And so you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to be ashamed. You just have to look to me and trust me. Or look in my direction and want to trust me. Right? That's hope, my friends. Jesus understands you. I'll say it before and I'll say it again. The parts of your life that you hide from everyone else, the parts of your life that you can hide from yourself that you're so ashamed of, God, Jesus sees that and he loves you. He's excited for you. Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The joy. What was that joy? The joy was knowing that you, each one of us in this room, would be his family forever. So we don't have to be afraid. We can just trust in Jesus. Bring the whole of ourselves to him and say, God, I'm a mess. I don't have everything figured out. I don't know if I ever will. I'm sorry. Please help me. I trust you. I want to trust you. That might sound like feeble faith. Maybe it is. Jesus doesn't care. The moment you start speaking in his direction, he'll hug you. He'll hold you close. And he won't let go. So I want to encourage you right now. We're about to go to the Lord's table, Holy Communion. I don't know your lives. I can't judge that. I know your heart. I don't want to judge that. I just want to invite you to hold your life in your hands as you come to the Lord's table. Don't just make it a ritual. Tell God, I just want you to be part of my life. I don't know what that means yet. There's a lot of things I want to take sorry for, and there's probably more that I should take sorry for that I don't know about yet. But God, I come to you. Um, I want to trust you. I want to want to trust you. Please help me. You say that, Jesus is right there. He's right here right now. Right here. Trust in him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Gracious and loving God, Lord, we give you thanks that, I give you thanks that as often as I forget you, you don't forget me. As often as we forget you, you don't forget us. But you come to us in the, in the person of Jesus, your son, to call us to you, to, make the, to heal us, to make us whole, to untangle the mess that we can't, we can't fix. God, I pray for every person in this room that whatever's in your life right now that is blocking your voice of love and hope, I would pray that you would remove that. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to hear your word. And when we hear it, give us the courage to step forward in faith to do your will in this world. Let not our will be done, but only yours. This we pray in the name of Jesus.